All right. Well, uh, it's good to see you made it tonight, even though poor Bethany is on her way and uh, or she's watching virtual. I don't know. Uh, Ryan, we got any virtual watchers tonight? Okay. Well, maybe she's en route. We'll have to pray that she gets here okay. Hopefully she's not rushing too fast. But anyway, I thought everybody had um, was on the uh, text. And uh, so we found out that Pastor has evidently cut her out of the group. So I'm not sure what she did. But we just need to pray she gets back in favor. And uh, now we do appreciate uh, the work that Addison did this week. And uh, it's a blessing to be back in the church, isn't it? Um, you know, we may have to run house to house eventually, but we don't want to start any time early. You know, we may have to start taking turns, too, at that point. But I'm thankful uh, to have, we, and we've had a place to meet, thankful for Pastor opening up his home and all that uh, they did to support that. And, of course, it also goes to show you that we don't need this building. We don't need this piece of property. Um, we can we can definitely meet and and serve the Lord as a church, and uh, it's a blessing to know that God's not contained to a place, and um, we're we're very blessed in that way. I um, I do you know ask you to pray for pastors. He has his time away with his family, and then you know they get a good rest and relaxation, and come back recharged and uh, looking forward to. Sunday, of course, he'll be preaching and then Bradley preaching in the afternoon. So let's go ahead and have you turn in your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 4. You see, it's not Genesis. Well, pastor's over there and this is uh, worked out and I think rather timely on some of the things that are going on current event-wise. Um, our nation's in deep distress. And uh, we're seeing evil acted out in ways that uh, is unimaginable, no doubt, by earlier uh, societies and cultures within our American culture. I mean, people would never envision today uh, when people would go out and uh, hear, hear a young man going out and, and committed such a horrible atrocity there in Texas. And um, tonight we're going to talk about uh, horrible atrocity. And, and what happened during this period uh, of the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's a familiar passage, and we're going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and we'll get started. Starting in verse 1, it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out uh, against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined the battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when they were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. 
And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? And these are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there have been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break and he died for he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. And his daughter-in-law Phineas's wife was with child near to be delivered and when she had heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead she bowed herself and travailed for her pains came upon her and about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she stated, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. I want to take as my ver the text verse tonight, what we want to look at is particularly that statement she makes, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taking. I want to talk about missing the ark or more importantly, as you give the sermon title, Ryan, missing the mark and a little play on words there, but the mark of God's glory. We're going to talk about that tonight. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you so much for tonight and we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and we look forward to gathering around thy word and I pray that tonight I'd be clear, or did I give the word, and that it would be clear, and most of all, that the Spirit of God would work, and we would be comforted in these words and challenged. And Lord, we look forward to what you have for us tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this point, thinking about that mark. You know, we do training. Uh, we go out and... Uh, Nathan will arrange for us to go and train as a church and be prepared 
and uh, part of training, and, and y'all should be thankful for that because, you know, I think that all of you would want people here to be uh, experts at being able to, you know, uh, aim straight, do those things. Um, when we go out and do the drills and we're looking at the, the, uh, the targets and things, guys, what's the one thing that we fear the most? It's just a paper target. I know, what I, I know what it is for me. I feel like a 10-year-old boy taking a test. What is it that Nathan does? He gets, out a, he gets out a marker. And what Nathan does, he'll say, well, let's see, Brother Hall. That one's yours. That, one, that one's yours. That, that one's yours. <laughs> and he marks them. And we're getting graded, aren't we? See, it's important to hit the mark. If we don't hit the mark, he should be concerned. He should have some. He should say, "Now, brother Hoyle, we're gonna have to work on that. Come on back up here." Like I said, you feel like a ten-year-old kid. By the time you're done, you're like, "Okay," and you go up there, and you know they are all around you trying to help you. And I'm thankful for that because you know what? It is important. People's lives are at stake. What about for the Christian? What if we did that spiritually in our church? What if we said, hey, we've got a marker here. Bradley? Yeah, that? It's on target. Bradley, that's not. You say, you wouldn't do that, would you? No, we can't do that. We're not the Spirit of God. And by the way, we're not you. And only you know where you missed the mark. At least initially. Missing the mark is it's tough. Now, we know it does not take a deep Christian thought to read into this passage and realize that Phineas' wife, she missed the mark. I think we all sitting here know what she's talking about. What's she talking about? Well, she's talking about a piece of furniture. You say, but that was a very revered piece of furniture that sat in the Holy of Holies. I understand that. It was a symbol of God's presence, but it was not God's presence. It was, it was to be taken care of and treated with great respect. But they lost it. And she felt like all is lost. Here's a woman that died thinking in hopelessness that it's the glory is departed. I appreciate her her uh, fervor and for her her feeling of of distress and of course you know she's you know because obviously it's not a this is not a joking matter they have so much going on right now for the nation of Israel. You know as we read that story the thing that stood out to me was that they went out, they were confronted by the, the Philistines, and they, they, were, they were defeated, they, they were smitten. And, and, and thank the Lord for people who are willing to fight, people who are willing to put up a fight. You know, nowadays I wonder, during their time they had some people who thought, you know what, we'll fight, we'll put up a fight. 
And the Bible here says that there were about 4,000 men that died. And for Israel, they knew that was a pretty bad defeat. And they came back, and they were trying to decide, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to address this? What are we going to do? And so they began to plot and plan, and then their thoughts were, well, let's push God into a position that he can't get out of. Let's, let's push him to have to defend the ark. And so, of course, they do this, they lose the ark, and they lost so many more once they went back into battle. And, of course, the Philistines, we're going to talk about them more in here in just a minute. But there, it is a, a, a sad day for Israel. She sees it, and, of course, uh, she's worried about the glory having been departed. The Hebrew word for that is spelt K-A-B-O-D, if you were looking at an English transliteration of what's there, but it's actually pronounced K-A-V-O-D, kavod. And it's mentioned many times throughout the Bible, and it can take on things like uh, words. It can be interpreted also honor and praise, magnificence, awesome, splendor. And, you know, as we think about uh, this word glory, it has... Uh, with it, the idea of, like I said, magnificence and splendor. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You know, we, can, we don't have to look far to see the glory of God and see all that he's created. Um, also, it can be talking about us. And it says honor, you know, when we think about honor and praise that are bestowed upon him because of what we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can bring glory to God by what you do. And then we also see the manifest presence of God. Exodus thirty-three eighteen. What did Moses ask for? He says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. You know, this can bring out the, the idea of wonder and goodness and the realization that God is real and personal. It reflects on his desire for personal intimacy. In fact, when we think of what Moses did in his interaction with the Lord, if you remember his face shone, and we'll talk a little bit about this more, but when he came away, he, he glowed. And the fact that the Bible says that he spoke to God face to face. And of course, we know that God did grant his request to show him his backside, a manifestation of his presence. We know that in Isaiah 6, we're familiar with that passage, and you're more than welcome to turn there. But I'll read the passage, it's familiar. It reflects on all these things we've spoken of, God's majesty, his holiness, his splendor. In verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried and said unto another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his what, church? Glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
You know, we think about God's glory. We think about, you know, what Isaiah saw here. It is God's purpose to have his glory revealed in our life. You know, I think all of us, when we look at what was said in 1 Samuel 4, and we understand how she felt, that the glory of God did not depart that day. Why, why church? Why would that be true? It was already gone. Doesn't it take a lot of insight to look into that and realize that she's wrong and that she missed the mark? You know, the danger for us today is for us to miss the mark. For us to go about our life. And when tragedy hits, we go, where's God? And I think when we do a deep soul search, we find out he's been gone all along because we went and let him in. We turned and walked away. We became disillusioned. We became discouraged. We chose just to manage life, sit back in defense, and not charge the gates of hell. We took our, our uh, mission objective, set them to the side, and said, you know what, I'm going to hang right here at camp, <laughs> and I'm not going out. I'm not fulfilling the mission. Besides that, this world is too far gone. There's too many bad things happening in the world. I made a list of bad things. I thought I'd encourage your heart tonight. How about media bias? Does that bother you? I say CNN. Do you get a warm, tingly feeling? Think about the collusion that takes place over our media and falsehoods and what goes on. How about gender confusion? Do you know what gender you are? Because a lot of people I found out don't. Sexual perverseness. Look around. They're trying to teach children. Teach children. Not just to accept but to participate. Globalism, the embrace of socialism and communism, geopolitical events and the affairs out there, national shame to sing the Star Spangled Banner, to be patriotic, to be thankful for you know, our nation and for what's here. In fact, you'll be considered uh, a horrible person if you... Have, have any admiration of the, the historical figures that brought us to where we are. How about the embrace of criminals, letting them out on the street, giving them, you know, pro maybe feeling more empathetic and sympathetic to them than they do the victims. How about inflation is good? I've heard that recently. Inflation's good. Spending a bunch of money is good. Running up the national debt is good. Business is bad. We, we, we don't know. It's okay to run out of formula. It's okay to run out of gas. It's okay to run out of all these other things. How about the corruption of our institutions like the FBI and other, other organizations deep within the uh, Washington establishment? I'll read them fast. Protests, violence, border chaos, hatred for the police, policemen being killed, ignoring scandals, Supreme Court being harassed, school workplace shootings, energy dependence, returned, uh, de dependence return, not independence, authoritarian COVID-19 draconian mandates, attack on parents, being called terrorists, destruction of good people's lives for their stands. Uh, how about withdrawal from Afghanistan and where we leave others in, in this world? First Amendment attack, the disinformation board, social media policies, illegal drugs crossings, um, voting irregularities not being investigated. How about when I say the name Soros or Bill Gates? many other rich aristocrats, unlawful imprisonment, citizens, and everyone is a racist or bigot, 
and an incompetence in our leadership, education crisis, and rabid environmentalism. I had to stop because I actually was not able to go on. I just couldn't do it. That's a pressure. And if we don't admit that it's there, we're going to miss the point. By the way, that's not, that's just the beginning. What about for those who, who, when you look at the emergent church and all the things that are out there, the new evangelicals and the consumerism that's been created amongst people and the true cause of discipling people and seeing them won and discipled being lost. I think about how even closer to home, how fundamentalist churches and their errors in trans-denominational thinking and encouraging the universal church and the compromise that they have taken can truly weaken us. How do we deal with this reality? We look around and we think, where is God? Where is, it, it seems like, what happened? And that's not the count. Now, I'm talking about things that go outside of your own personal life, things that you're struggling with, things that you go through. How did we get here? How do we change it? Well, I thought that we would take a look as we, as we look here at missing the mark, uh, some of the people, some of the things that had missed the mark, and one of them is the bad characters involved in, the, uh, in this passage that we're talking about. You know, we're talking about Eli in, in chapter 1 and verse 9 and chapter 4 and verse, four, verse 18. We see that he held two positions. One was as priest and the other was as judge. You know, Eli was uh, a man here, as you think about it, and that's point one, an example of bad character. He was a man of bad character. He had, he had things that he did well. He, he helped raise Samuel, and, of course, he, he, was, he did, uh, you know, function uh, and carried out uh, his duty as, as a priest in some ways. In other ways, he did not. We'll talk more about that. He was a man that rebuked Hannah in chapter 1 and verse 14, and then, then he ultimately blessed her. He accused her of being drunken when she's praying and seeking the Lord. This is a man that can't believe someone's actually really praying. Uh, he did rear Samuel. Uh, of course, he, rebuked, he was rebuked by a prophet and his protege, Samuel, for his permissiveness as a parent. In fact, go there in chapter 2 and verse 27. It says, And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto thy house and of thy father when they were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, and there shall not be an old man in thine house, and thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation. 
and in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in our house forever. And he talks about cutting him off and cutting off his family, cutting off his seed. You want to talk about missing the mark? It, she, she missed it. Her father-in-law had missed the mark. She couldn't see it, though, because all she could see was that they lost a piece of furniture. She missed the point of the presence of God. And no doubt, it was his not appreciating the presence of God that made that difference. And, of course, we know that he, uh, he lived in guilt, knowing God's judgment. If you go back over to chapter 4, chapter four verse 13, when the ark does go out, it says that he trembled for what? The ark of God. He could have said something. He could have stopped it. And he's fearful right now. He's a bad character in all of this. He's a contributing character. How about his sons? Chapter 2, go over there. Look in verse 12. They were the sons of what, church? Belial. Think about that. They didn't know God. It says it there. They knew not the Lord. Sons of Belial. I think that would have been an easy requirement to have held to. Or at least where we started. Verse 14. What were they doing, church? It says there they struck into in, in the, talking about the flesh hook, into the hand or kettle or cauldron or pot and all that flesh were brought free cells. So, so they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came hither and they, uh, before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, "Give flesh to the pros, uh, to the priest to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw." And of course, the people would beg them, "Hey, please don't do this." And they would take it anyway. And this says in verse seventeen, the sin of that was very great. People abhorred the offering of the Lord. They, they stole. They bullied. Look in verse twenty-two. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They committed immorality right there in the temple. And then, of course, in verse 17, uh, verses 17 through 24 is where Eli eventually, after all of this, um, if you pick up there, actually... Um, we'll pick up there in 24. It says, Nay, my sons, it is no good report that I hear... You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of the Father, because the Lord would slay them. These are people who cause, instead of causing God's people to walk in the presence of God's glory, they were leading them away from God's glory. It's no wonder that Phineas' wife did not know what God's glory is, that she didn't understand the mark. You know, as we look here in chapter 4 and verse 3, we see that the nation was smitten. In verse 5, they come back, they get into an emotional fit. 
They get excited. They get ramped up. And all this excitement, this emotionally driven thing um, is missing the mark because it lacks the most important character of God repeated three times in Isaiah 6, and that is God's holiness. They chose their emotion over God's holiness. They are equally bad characters as we look at this. And in verse 10, we see them completely hopeless and struggling. You know, we think about where they're at right now, and uh, they're smitten, and every man has run to his tent. They missed the mark. They thought the mark was get behind the ark and let's go after it. And yet they failed. So we see Eli. We see Hophni and Phinehas. We see the nation. And the last set of characters, these are bad guys, but you've got to give it to them. In verse 7, who are they? They're the Philistines, yeah. They were afraid. By the way, Philistines, this is the wrong approach. You should not be afraid of a piece of furniture. You should be afraid of the living God. And this is where they go wrong. But they also go right. Look in verse 9. They, they said, hey, be strong. You can't get Christians to fight that way most of the time. Things get bad enough, you're thinking up going up against the living God. I always wonder about the end times how, how nations are going to go up at the Lord, against the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever wonder about that? And, and yet, here these, these guys, they say, you know what? The chips are down, but buckle up. We're going in. And then in verse 10, they were victorious over the children of Israel, but they were not victorious over God. In fact, they won something they wished they'd have given back earlier. And in a comical way, God, in his great grace, allows that ark to be carried somewhat of a Trojan horse into the Philistine camp. Because God, in his presence and his glory, was not captured by the Philistines. He had them right where he wanted them. And... um, You know, we think about that, and it's so important for us to realize that these bad characters, where did they come from? What were they the fruit of? Well, you know, this is written in the book of 1 Samuel, but what period is this, church? It's the period of the judges. What is it about the period of the judges? Well, there are three things that occur in the period of the judges. We know that the Word of God is neglected. In fact, at this time, the Bible says that there is no open vision, okay, uh, until Samuel comes along. We know that worship has been perverted and syncretism has kept in, and that's the combining of the practices of, of Old Testament law and the service in the temple with Baal and other things, and it's what Phineas and them were, were doing, and it's also what we find at the end of Judges, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And then the ordinances are ignored, their walk is ignored, and they disregard carrying out those ordinances. Go over to Exodus chapter 33.
And um, for the sake of time, uh, I'm not going to be able to read all of this, but um, they, they, he, he hears, we look in verse, let's pick up in verse uh, 11. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, Thou sayest to me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, what did Moses say? Carry us up, not hence. Moses says, I'm not, I want your presence. I want your glory. I want to hit the mark. And if you're not with us, Lord, I don't want to go. For wherein shall it be known that thy and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, and from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this, this thing also that, I, that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight. And I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, and I will pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. And then later we see in chapter 34, we're going to have to skip a little bit here too, but basically he takes the two tables of stone. You know, you see there in chapter 33 where he's talking about the idea of face-to-face and that intimate, close relationship that they have and his, his desire for God's presence. And the idea that he says... I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I think about the glory of God and hitting the mark, and it's his presence and his goodness, his power, his holiness, his mercy, his grace that we realize on an individual and personal level. Realize corporately as we all submit to the Lord, but not in a piece of furniture. It is, it is not anything that's been created here. In fact, the, out, the output of it is the walk and the ordinances. And we see in chapter 34 that he hews the two uh, tables, it says in, in, in verse 4. And, of course, the Lord, of course, comes down. And Moses eventually comes back in verse 10. And he says, Behold, I, made a co- I, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do Marvels such as not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shalt see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe that which I command thee this day. Obedience always follows when we submit to his holiness and who he is. And, of course, he tells him what they're supposed to do to the inhabitants of this land. 
And he tells him, he says, you shall destroy their altars, in verse 13, break their images, you'll cut down their groves, and you'll not worship another god. And he, he tells him that he is a jealous god. And, and he goes on to describe what exactly happens in the book of Judges and the period of Judges and what produced the character of a young lady who says the glory is departed. Well, it's because we've gotten away from the mark, from the place. Here it is, slowly, over time, in the book of Judges, we see that there's a cycle going on. In fact, great civilizations that go through this cycle, it's, it's pretty common because it all hangs upon one thing, man's depravity. He starts out in bondage, then there's spiritual faith, then great courage, liberty, then it becomes abundance. Oh, wait a minute. Then it becomes leisure, then selfishness, complacency, apathy, dependence, weakness, and bondage. We can feel that in our nation today. I'd say, boy, it sure, sure does feel like we've gone through that cycle. Weakness and bondage. You know, I think about the fact that the erosion that goes on within the human heart, within the nation, and within any corporate place that goes through this is much like the tide that comes in and goes out. When I was a kid, I used to sit out on the beach and I would enjoy building my sandcastle. There was only one problem. I didn't know it, but the water was way off. But I'd sit there and I'd build it. And I like making a big one and a nice one. In fact, I wanted to rival everything that was on the beach. It was going to be my creation. And amazingly, with my back turned, maybe just finishing the last little tower, what happens? A wave crashes in, takes it out, and I never saw it coming. You say, yeah. I can understand the erosion there. Kind of as it comes in, it just slowly creeps in. That's kind of what's going on here. It's the period of the judges that have produced this. You know, when we think about the period of the judges, you should always contrast the book of Judges against the book of Joshua. In fact, if you look at those two books, you'll see that Joshua is a book of victory. Judges is a book of defeat. Joshua is a motive to fight. Judges a motive to maintain. Joshua was mobilizing. Judges is settling. Joshua was unity and determination. Judges was disunity and our anarchy. Joshua was land to be conquered. Judges, well, the land is ours. Joshua was pioneers. Judges was lazy people. Joshua was patriotism, national pride. Judges was national indifference. You know, we look and, we, and we're trying to characterize this period. You know, we looked at the character of bad people. But what are the conditions that produce this kind of thinking? That we're going to send a piece of furniture into a battle. You say, well, they've done that before. Well, God directed that through God's men and God's people. But they just said, you know, we're going to force God's hand and push a piece of furniture out there. How do we get to this point? Well, 
the real, the real thing that we see here is that it's failure through compromise. Everything that God told them not to do in the book of Exodus, they're doing now in the book of Judges. And, you know, when we think about the book of Judges, there's a common theme there, and, you, and it's found in 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and 21.25. Church, what is it? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And there was no, in fact, at some point it begins to emphasize there was no king. And the reason why that emphasis was there was because there was no accountability to anyone, much less God. Permissiveness prevailed, and there was no responsibility. You know, we think about this. Why did they not see it failing? Why did they not see it coming? The tide come in and washed out their castle before they ever knew it. Took their ark away. The thing that they believed was so important. It was an erosion of their values, erosion of what God had taught them and what God wanted them to do in the land. You know, when Joshua enters the land, there's a commitment to attack. Go over to Judges chapter 1. Joshua led them, and he was successful in each raid, and they went out and had uh, great victories. Back in Joshua 1, it's, it, it, it transfers and after the death of, of Moses. Here we see now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Boy, that's always the question, isn't it? You know, hey, we've got this job to do. Well, who's going first? Not me. Not me. <laughs> who's going to be it, you know? Of course, God told them. He met them there. Judah go up. I've delivered the land in his hand. And um, if you look down at verse 19, well, let's see how they did. Let's look at the condition of these people. Let's see what they're doing. It says, and the Lord was with Judah. There's his presence. There's his glory. He's with them. Let's go. And they drave out the inhabitants of the mountain. Praise the Lord. All right, we're done. Let's go home. Now, I know y'all are reading the rest of the verses I'm talking. What's the problem? But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because God was not enough. No, wait a minute. They forgot to put a piece of furniture in front of them not what it says it says because they had chariots what does that have to do with anything they have iron chariots chariots of iron you know what I think we just leave them alone we didn't want that valley anyway just let them they'll probably get bogged in the mud let's just leave that with them look in verse 21 and the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Israel unto this day. Let's just let them stay here. Verses 27 through 28. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bashin and her towns, nor Tanak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ibleam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. 
Wow. So they, here it is, the Canaanites, they become slaves. Uh, look in verse 34. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. Now, church, is that the mark? Is that what God laid out for Moses in Exodus 33 and 34? It is not. And it is the settling of these things. Why did they fail? It was incomplete obedience. No, my church, it's direct disobedience to God's word. When we fail like that, we think, well, we've done a lot of it, but we have not followed through. Direct disobedience. We see later, we say, well, you know what? That, that just seems unfair. Really? Look in chapter 3. Chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. Did you hear that? Which the Lord left to what? Prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel who had, as had not known all the wars of Canaan. It was not for them, you know, they were there, they were to, they were to always be on the offensive. What you find in Judges is a defensive model that they try to employ and live and enjoy life and find some comfort there. But in the book of Joshua, it's an offensive mindset all the time, constantly patrolling and getting after these things. And you say, yeah, but they're going to be there. The Lord had left them there. I understand. How many times in our life does God leave things for us to have to be on the offensive of that we know we have to deal with personally in our life? And this is what's going on for them. In verses 4 through 6, it says, verse 4, there you see that word again, and they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, the ordinances of God, what he commanded them to do, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters, whoa, to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. Verse 11. Skip down there. You know, it, you know, as we look at this, uh, I've got the wrong verse here, so I'm going to have to stop there. But, you know, we look at it, they, they failed, they turned to idolatry, they turned to intermarriage in verses 4 through 6. And, you know, we see here that they, they, they fail to do what God would have them do. They failed the test, they miss the mark. And, and no doubt, you, you feel like, well... Can they still serve God? Well, they've become very carnal. They've become very carnal. And they go into a cycle of disobedience and bondage and misery, and then God's grace of giving a judge, and then we'd see uh, compromise and disobedience, and the cycle continue. You know, when we went through the... We, we even taught this in Sunday school... There's a weird period that begins for the book of Judges. And you say, yeah, and that's saying a lot because the book of Judges has some crazy stuff in it. I mean, just seems like it's over the top. Well, when you get to chapter 17, we see that their thinking 
changes even further, and you find a man by the name of Micah there, an idolatry. In fact, go over there real quick. In chapter 17, the Bible says that uh, <laughs> it's a characterization of this period, so you know exactly what happens. And in chapter 17, we see Micah there. His mother has had some silver stolen from her, and um, he tells his mother that he stole it, and his mother said what? Blessed be thou. I mean, if Lydia tells you that, Amber, aren't you? Blessed be you, uh, Lydia, for for stealing mom's stuff. And then she gives him that portion back, and he makes an idol, and, and, and it's weird. And it's, and it's strange. And then we see later a priest comes along. And uh, in, ver- in verse 7, it was a Levite, someone who should be warning people about pure worship. And he gets involved with Micah, and he compromises. And, he is, and, he, and he's a part of this idolatry and compromise. And then if you look over in chapter 19, we see even a stranger story that ensues. And that story is about... Uh, here, this, this Levite, in fact, if you go over there real quick, it says there, of course, in 19.1, it says, And it came to pass in those days when there was no king of Israel, there was a certain Levite journeying on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And we know the story, and it's a strange story, but eventually he goes back and his, his concubine runs away and she goes to her father's house. And on his trip back, he ends up, in, in, in Israel trying to get back home, and, uh, and, and uh, a man finds them there in the town center and takes them in. And what do we see pervading the society that's there? What sin particularly comes to notice when, hey, send out that man that came in. It was homosexuals standing outside this house demanding for him to come out. Now you see how warped things have gotten. In fact, that man gives his concubine for them to rape her. And then there's anarchy and thousands are killed. And then we have Phineas's wife saying, the glory has departed. Something's missing. Something's missing. You see, people can live an entire life and miss the mark. You and I both can miss the mark. We can become at ease in Zion. We can take our rest in Judges and not be on the attack and the offensive in Joshua. We can become complacent to the point where here Israel has embraced homosexuality, the attack on this poor woman, and then just making up things they're going to go do and wipe out a tribe. We have to acknowledge that depravity, when embraced in carnality in our life, will bring permissiveness when righteousness is ignored. When permissiveness leads to rationalization, when holiness is ignored. And rationalization encourages rebellion when repentance is ignored. 
And we see all of these things here. Israel, for a long time now, they have let things go. And yet we have a woman in Israel who gives up all hope unnecessarily because she believes God had left. The truth was God was there all the time. She's the one that's left. Phineas is the one that left. Hophni had left. They did, did, didn't care about the grace of God. Didn't want anything to do with God. Eli, all the bad characters that were a part of this story. But thank the Lord, and we'll finish up with this. No, I've taken you long. Go over back to uh, 1 Samuel and go to chapter 6. Verse 19. We see here that the ark has had some time with the Philistines and they just figured out they didn't want that ark anymore because they had, uh, they had realized that it was more than they wanted to deal with and they were confused. They wanted it to go away. But it comes back to the children of Israel. And, you, and I want you to understand the whole characterization and how far I've taken it to show you the condition. We saw the characters, and then we saw the condition, and that was produced by the book of Judges. Nothing has occurred yet for them to have learned their lesson because we see this here. It says, in the, and he smote, in verse 19 of chapter 6, the men of Meshemesh because they had what? Looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people, how many? 50,000, threescore and ten men. If they were upset over four, if they were upset over 30, God got their attention. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Not that they had compromised, not that they had disobeyed, not that they had completely put aside the righteousness and the holiness of God. It's just because God has smitten the people. And then what did they say in verse 20? Who is able to stand before this what, church? Holy Lord God. Who can stand before a God that expects you to obey His word? Who can stand before a God who says, you know what, when I say it, I mean it, and this is what you need to do. You need to obey. You need to humble yourself. And by the way, this is the beginnings of that because they realized something. You see, they trotted on out there with that ark originally, didn't they? Did, God, did anybody die? No. The, the, you know what they needed? Just like they had the uh, Nehushtan had to go away. Well, guess what? God says, that piece of furniture needs to get out of here for a little while because I need their attention right now. And when it comes back and they treat it like a common piece of furniture, <laughs> it flips. It's kind of messing with their mind a little bit, right? And now they're realizing, wait a minute, God is holy. Ding, ding, ding. Guess what I've been looking for? Remember Nathan? What does he do with the mark? He takes the marker and he goes, Brother Hoy, you, you're hitting the mark now. We're starting to hit the mark now. Who shall be... A you said, yeah, but he killed 50,000 people. No, 50,000 people. God, that was great mercy and grace of them. He should have... I mean, he could have gotten rid of the whole nation. 
But you know what? There's a group of people that says, God's holy. We're hitting the mark now. We're hitting the mark. What about our life? When we decide to do something, we got up this morning, we're living life. Do we live it as though there is a holy God? Do we think about, now let's make sure I hit the mark here. Boy, if somebody said, if you make a mistake today, over 50,000 people are going to die, would that be a little pressure? God's holiness deserves that kind of attention. God holds them accountable. Look in chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. They eventually send this thing away, and they tell them to come get it. In verse 1, the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and they what? Sanctified. But do you think Hophni and Phinehas were ever sanctified? <laughs> I don't ever see a part in there where it said it in, you know, we haven't seen anything like that. They sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord, and it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjajerim that it, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You see, now obedience begins to take place. When we recognize the holiness of God and how when we stand in, 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 in a place of uh, we won't be able to humble ourselves. We're, we're struggling, and all of a sudden, life circumstances come, and God's providence begins to lead us to a place where we realize, you know what? I'm tired of this mess, and I want out. And I want to, I'll obey. I'll do what I need to do. And they begin to, they, this, this is God's grace. And the day that she said, remember what she said? Now, she died saying God's glory had departed. But that was actually the day, church, that God's grace was extended. You see, they had to get that piece of furniture out of the way so they could see God and know who he was. And when that thing came back in and they realized that God is holy and that they would be judged, they began to obey. And it took time. But in verse 3, what did Samuel say? If you do return unto the Lord with what? All your heart. This is not about your just duty. This is about a personal, intimate walk with God. This is not about just reading your Bible and showing up to church three times a week. This is about every moment of the day giving God His due because He is holy and He is righteous and He deserves it and He loves you and He wants to have a walk and He wants to have a fellowship and He, wants, he desires to have that with you every day. And He says you got to do it with all your heart. And he tells them, put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, what? We have sinned. And there you see repentance. 
there you see repentance. You see what follows in obedience is this repentant trust in God. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They were not yelling and screaming like they were before. They weren't emotional and saying, this is going to happen. But instead, they told him in verse 8, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Here, they come to this point, and all they want is communion with God. Pray. We're afraid. We need the Lord. And they, tr- they want to trust him. The, there was a phrase there that caught my attention in this, and as you look at it, you, 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 might, you might just read over it and not even think about it. But, you know, as they do this, they, they, uh, in verse 6, once they draw this water, they pour it out before the Lord, they're fasting, they repent to God. What does the Bible say that Samuel did with the children of Israel that day? You see, a judge back then did not make decisions on litigation. They were more in the place of a warrior, and I'll tell you how you can look and see. Go look at everything before chapter 17 of Judges, and these men were doing what? Going out. See, see the, the people would get themselves in trouble, and they would cry out for their great pains that they were going through. But the truth was, all they did was reset each time, right? They just kept resetting. Well, when Eli comes along, pay attention. Eli is a, what, what, what offices did he hold? He held priest and, and judge. You tell me where Eli led anybody into battle. He was just a fat priest that broke his neck. That's what he was. And he sat around and ate of the offerings. You see, God did not raise up to them more of the same. Eli had an opportunity to judge Israel. But it wasn't leading him into the defeat of their enemy out there. It was to deal with the enemy in here. You see, when Samuel judges the people, what had they just done, church? They had repented because they had sinned against a holy and righteous God. It is this repentance where a person can truly realize that God is personal, intimate in my life. He's not just a good luck charm that the ark had become. We'd, that cycle's done. There's no more Samson's coming along. Eli, you had your shot. Here comes Samuel. And the Bible says he, he, it does not say that he's judged them yet. Here's where they're judged. This is the judgeship of, the, of Samuel. And I will tell you this, I, he is a warrior greater than Samson himself. Because here's a man who has patiently waited and done right and grew up and grew close to the Lord and had a fellowship and a walk with God like no other man during that period. And he was in a place where he could judge. And of course, we know what happens out of this story. 
there's a great victory. And verse 13 says, so the Philistines were subdued. And, you know, we think about that. Um, It's a blessing to have peace in our life. But peace is not the absence of conflict. A famous man once said that. Peace comes at a price. And it's a price that you and I have to make. We have to make a conscious choice not to miss the mark. Don't be like Phineas' wife that misses the ark. Be concerned about missing the mark. And if we do, we'll have a walk with God that no one can take away. No one can steal our joy. No circumstance can steal our joy. You want me to go back and read that list to you? None of those things can steal your joy. None of those things can rob you of what is so important, which is that you exist for the glory of God and for you to realize the glory of God. It hasn't departed. It's here for you to claim. I hope you do that. It's a challenge to me. Trust me, I'm just as discouraged as anybody else at times. But I thank God that God says I'm right here. I'm right here. Let's pray.